Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you, and wow, good job for coming out. It's, uh, it's so interesting, you know? It's like, when you're talking to people, it feels like half the people think there's gonna be a hurricane, right? There's a run on toilet paper again. It's bringing back bad memories, right? bad memories, right? And, uh, and then the other half is like, eh, it's gonna be no big deal, right? Right, and that, I think you're probably, most of you are on this other's half, you know? So I am too, I am too. Now, for those of you watching online, I know which half you're on. You, you are on, I think Jesus is coming back today, the world is ending, tsunamis are coming. Um, but just, you know, we still love you, we still love you. Um, but I'm looking forward, and i tell you where I'm at. Uh, I brought my clothes today to go hiking after the service. So, uh, so I got my waterproof boots, I've got my poncho, uh, unless there's lightning, I'm going, right? We're going to, and and uh, I love, it's one of my favorite, this has nothing to do with the message today, by the way, but uh, one of my favorite memories was when I was younger, I was, I was backpacking with a buddy in the Sierras, and uh, it was like October, and the rain's just cut loose. Like it was cold driving, kind of fall rain. And it was just exhilarating. You always had like, you know, shorts on, cut off uh, t-shirt, and you're just powering up the mountain, you know, through this driving rain. It's one of the best experiences of my life uh, until the hypothermia set in. Um, and in about a half an hour, I was in a tent. He's spoon feeding me uh, 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 top ramen to uh, revive me, but it was still great. It was awesome. <laughs> So um, anyway, we're gonna go into our time of teaching right now. And so uh, inside your program is that green and white message note sheet. And if you're at home sitting your lot, sipping your latte, uh, there in the screen, uh, top or bottom, you can just uh, click on the link and, and find your uh, favorite format. So if you're all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Let's pray. Well, Father, we're just excited to be here. We thank you for the rain, Lord. We need it. And just an exciting weekend as we come together, um, as we pursue you together and uh, look forward to what you're gonna do. And we thank you for this amazing letter that we're gonna be diving back into the letter of Romans. We pray that you'll be with us, that your spirit would speak loud and clear, and that we would have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today uh, on the last day of June. And uh, it's, uh, it's late in the afternoon. And he is uh, about 34 years old. Um, he's from France. He grew up in France. Um, but he is now here in our country. And uh, on this particular day, um, he is about to attempt a feat that no one in history has ever been able to accomplish. And uh, most in the crowd don't believe it's possible. In fact, on this day, there's 25,000 people here to watch him make this attempt. And uh, the vendors are there, um, people from all walks of life, many extremely famous and influential people are there. And finally, about just shortly before five o'clock in the evening, as the summer sky, summer sun is just starting to descend, uh, it's a downward path, um, everyone holds their collective breath as he steps out and takes his first step. Well, today, uh, we are returning to the series we started back at the beginning of June um, that's called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome. Uh, this series is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters ever written in human, in human history. 
It's, it's uh, written from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. Um, his name is, is the Paul or the Apostle Paul. The letter is in what we call the second half or second part of our Bibles, if you're new at this, called the New Testament. And so in this letter, Paul is writing to a group of Jesus followers who live in the capital of the Roman Empire. They live in Rome. Rome's about a million people strong at this point. And most of these people, the Apostle Paul's never met. And so we call this letter the letter to the Romans. And so if you were here uh, back in June, we started, uh, we kind of did a deep dive for seven weeks in the first, uh, the, the Paul's long intro to this letter that starts at verse one and goes through verse 15. Today, we're gonna pick it up at verse 16, where Paul begins to transition between the intro to the main body of the letter that's gonna start at the middle of chapter one and go through chapter, the middle of chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you have your apps, uh, let's go ahead and open up to Romans chapter one there. And you know, sheets a section called the Gospel of God, five key concepts, right? So as we, we jump in, let me set it up. If you were here for the first part of this series, you know that, that, uh, the, that in Paul's long intro, that in the first half of the intro, he introduces himself and he introduces this message that Jesus has entrusted to, to, uh, for him to, to bring to us, uh, which he calls the gospel of God in verse one. And then the second half of the intro that picks up at verse 18 goes to verse 15, Paul shares how he's planning to come to Rome in the near future, and he's looking forward to visiting them so he can share with them this gospel of God. So that's the context. He's just said, I'm looking forward to coming and, and sharing this gospel. Now, what it's gonna happen is he's gonna go, today he's gonna go into his next two verses. And these two verses are gonna serve as a transition from the intro into the main body. And in these two verses, he's going to, in one way, summarize this gospel of God and summarize this message that he is gonna be unpacking for them over the next 15 chapters, right? So two verses, it's gonna take him 15 chapters to explain what he means by these two verses. And so let's, uh, let's jump in and see what he says. So he says in uh, verse uh, 16, remember he's just said he's looking forward to coming and sharing this gospel with them in Rome. And so in verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And we'll talk later about why he's not ashamed, uh, more about that. But he says, the reason I'm not ashamed is because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who what? Who believes, and notice that. And he says, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, a key phrase we'll talk about later, is revealed. And this is a righteousness that comes by faith. It's from first to last, or in the Greek, it actually says it's from faith to faith. Uh, and then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, just as it is written, this is in the, the minor prophet Habakkuk, chapter two, the righteous will live by faith, all right? So, so these are two verses, and in these two verses, like I said, he kind of summarizes this message, the gospel of God, and, uh, and he introduces at least five key concepts that he's gonna be unpacking in this letter. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna take some time just kind of taking a deep dive in these five key concepts and to get at this, we're going to look at the first three in this first section. We're going to look at three key Greek words or phrases he uses and talk about them briefly. And then we're going to come back at the end and talk about the last two key words he uses uh, by asking you two questions that are very practical and apply to our lives. So here, we, let's jump in. So there in your note sheet, 
the first section is uh, the gospel of God, three key words. So let's, the, let's jump in. So the first word that we're going to see in these two verses is this word gospel, all right? So uh, the Greek version of that, the Greek word is the word euangelion, uh, which literally means good news. So if you've been with us in the first seven weeks of this series, you know that in those first seven weeks, we highlighted six key, what I call gospel words. That each one, they're, they're a big part of Paul's vocabulary, and they're, they're like windows. Each word is like a window into his worldview and into the message of Jesus, what he calls this gospel of God. And one of those words we looked at was this word, euangelion. Now, we don't have time today to go back and do a deep dive on that. If you're interested, you can go back and pick up that message. It's called euangelion. Um, but... Uh, Remember, there, it was a word with a lot of rich connotations, uh, both in terms of the Jewish scriptures, especially the book of Isaiah, and then also in the Roman world, where the word euangelion was tied to the emperor and good news of the empire and the lord of the empire and so on. Um, but one of the things that we learned, one big takeaway, and this is really important for us today, is this word gospel is a very big word. Euangelion is a big word. It really encompasses this epic story, this epic message that starts at the first creation and then leads to the new creation, and it all leads up to and out of the Messiah of Israel. All right, and so Paul says, you see there in your new sheet, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the euangelion, the good news, um, and this is what he's going to be unpacking for us. The next 15 chapters, this gospel of God, as he calls it, in the first verse of his intro, okay? Second key word. This is actually a phrase. The second phrase, or the second key word, is the righteousness of God. Okay? Righteousness of God. Now, the way you say that in Greek, I put it there in parentheses, is dekeasune, Theu. So dikaisune is the word that means righteousness or catches, it can be translated justice. It's either righteousness or justice. And then theu uh, just means of God. Uh, the word theos is for God and theu means of God. Okay? So this is a very important phrase for the Apostle Paul. In fact, we will come back to it when we get to chapter three, when he's kind of, everything's leading up to chapter three in this first section and so we'll see it again, um, this righteousness of God. And so notice there in your, your, uh, the verse, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the what? The righteousness of God is revealed. So why is this salvation so powerful? Because the righteousness of God is revealed through this message. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean by righteousness of God? And I want to give you two, uh, two different opinions. Scholars are really divided on this. And there's bright and good scholars on both sides. But I want to share both of them because I think, I think one's more important than the other, but they're, they're both significant as we go through this letter. Uh, the first group of scholars, they say that when we're talking about the righteousness of God, we're talking about God's personal righteousness like part of his core character, right? Like, so I see my friend Will here in the front row, and if I talked about Will's righteousness, I could be referring to his character, 
is righteous character and walks righteously with God, right? So they would say that when we talk about the righteousness of God, we're talking about God's character of righteousness is revealed in the message of Jesus. And the question is, well, how? Well, here's what we see is that throughout the Bible, God has made promises both to the nation of Israel and to the human race. So for example, if we go back to Genesis 3, when we first rebelled against God as a race, Remember, the judgment came, death entered in, and all the destruction entered in. But if you remember in that first conversation between God and the first man, the first woman, that he said, in spite of this judgment, he said in Genesis 3, that out of the seed of woman, one would arise who would crush the serpent's head. And so God has made a promise that death will not have the last the last say, that one will arise. And then, of course, he raises up the nation of Israel through Abraham, and many promises are given to Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, and then all the way through Israel's history. For example, Abraham was promised that through him that all the nations of the world will be blessed through one of his descendants. Uh, when David comes along, David is promised that from his line, one great king will arise. And the prophets then begin to fill in more details that this king will one day reign from sea to sea. He will be, he will all, he will king over all the earth, right? The concept of the Messiah. And so God has made all these promises. But if you're a Jew in the first century, you're wondering what is going on? Yes, we're back in the land, but we've been under one conqueror after another. All these promises have not come true. And, and so these scholars would say in the gospel, and the coming of the Messiah and the message of Jesus, all these promises are being fulfilled and God's righteousness is being vindicated. So that's one group of scholars. Another group of scholars say, no, it's not that Paul is not talking when he talks about the righteousness of God. He's not talking about God's personal quality of righteousness. He's talking about the gift of righteousness that comes from God. This righteousness of God that is given to us through the coming of the Messiah. We're a rebel race. We're in rebellion. We are unrighteous. We're guilty before God. We're, we're broken, uh, rebellious people. How are those people going to be made right with God? How are those people going to be restored and be made righteous again? And they said, that's the story. That's, that's what Romans is about. It's about this, this righteousness of God. Now, if I had to choose, I would say this second one carries more weight for me, but there is some evidence for, for both of these and I want to point out, because we often don't think this way, but uh, there in your note sheet, I put a passage from Romans 15, which you remember, the middle of Romans 15 is the end of the main body of this letter. And so in there, Paul says, I tell you that the Christ, and remember Christ is the word for Messiah, that, that Christ, the Messiah, has become a servant of the Jews, known as by his life, his death and resurrection, on behalf of God's truth so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. That one of the reasons Jesus came was to fulfill the promises that started with the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Jesus has fulfilled the promises to the nation of Israel. So there's evidence, but as we'll see in chapter 3, when we get there, the dikai sune theyu seems to be Paul's way of talking primarily about this way that God has made a way for an unrighteous rebel race 
to be pronounced righteous and to be transformed to be the people we were created to be through the coming of the Messiah, especially his, his death for us, all right? So that's the second phrase. Now, the, third, the third, uh, third key word is the word faith. Now, the way you say faith in Greek is pistis. You see it there. And the way you say to have faith or to believe, we would say, is the word pistuo. So pistis is the noun. Pistuo is the verb. So pistis is faith. Pistuo is to have faith or to believe, we would say, right? And of course, this plays a very important part in these verses. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who what? Believes, right? So, so faith is how we appropriate or experience this righteousness of God, this salvation that the Messiah has come to give. And so, so what we'll see in Romans is that both our coming to Jesus and our growth in Jesus is never the result of our own performance. It's a result of what Jesus has done, his performance. It's by our trust in him. In fact, as we'll see later, probably a better word for us to understand this word faith, a better word to understand the word to believe is the word to trust. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. And so, but notice what a, how it plays such an important part here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on, for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, right? So, so this, this, this key concept that the way that we experience the power of God, the way that we access the righteousness of God, receive that, is not through our performance, it's through our trust in his performance. So these are three key concepts um, this is how we're going to be transformed to be the righteous people we were created to be through the coming of Jesus. And so three key concepts. So, so the first three, right, that he's, this, this whole letter is about the gospel of God, this big picture story of this great rescue movement uh, that, uh, that God has done throughout history that culminates in Christ. Secondly, this, the reason, that the, the, the heart of this story of the gospel is about the righteousness of God, how God has kept his promises and how we are made right with God and restored to be righteous people. And then number three, that the way this happens is not based on our performance, it's based on Jesus' performance, our trust in him. All right, so these are the first three of the five concepts that Paul introduces in these two critical introductory transition verses. But there's still two more. And to get at these, I wanna, I wanna ask two questions. And this will help us not only understand the words and the concept, but also be very applicable to our lives. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that is called the gospel of God, two key questions. So here's question number one. The first question is, how big is your salvation? How big is your salvation? Maybe kind of how big is your view of salvation is what we're going to be talking about. But Notice the word there in Greek is soteria. We may talk about that more later in the series, but we're not going to have a chance to do a big deep dive into the Greek word today. I just put it there for consistency's sake. But there in your notes, you'll notice that this is a very important word. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation, right? Soteria, right? So, so here's the thing. As we go through Romans, we're going to need 
a bigger view of what salvation means. That often, I think, when we use the word today, salvation, in modern kind of Christianity or cultural Christianity, that we have a very limited view of what salvation is, much like with the word gospel. There is a very limited. So, so I think that, for example, when, when we say, when we talk about salvation, the gift of salvation, if I were to ask you, what do we mean by salvation? I think for many of us, the answer would go something like this, that, um, well, it means that we believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. And of course, that's part of what salvation is. But we're going to say salvation is much, much bigger than that. The salvation is a huge theme throughout the whole Bible. And I think a better word often to catch the connotation of what it means is the word deliverance. Salvation is about a deliverance from evil, a deliverance from peril, a deliverance from danger. Um, and in the Bible, so when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about the complete and total deliverance of everything that's gone wrong in the world because of our rebellion. So he's talking about a physical deliverance, right? Our body, new bodies. He's talking about spiritual deliverance, new relationship with God. He's talking about moral deliverance. He's talking about ethical deliverance. He's talking about relational deliverance. He's talking about the turning of all wrongs to right, right? And so when you study the word salvation in the Apostle Paul, what you'll see is that he will use it in past tense, present tense, and future tense. So we often use it in very limited, like we'll ask someone, hey, when were you saved? And what we mean by that often is when did you give your life to Jesus so you get to go to heaven when you die? But what we're gonna see is for Paul, salvation is so much, but salvation is a process. It starts when we give our life to Jesus, that we are saved, but then it continues as we listen and follow the Spirit and are transformed to be like Jesus, we're being saved. And then our final salvation will come when Jesus comes back and gives us our new bodies and turns all wrongs to right the new creation. That's salvation. Salvation is a big, big word. And so let me give you just one example of this. In Philippians chapter two, Paul will challenge the Christians at Philippi. He says, continue to what? Work out your Salvation. Now, notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation is a gift based on the death of Christ for us that we can't work for it, but he says we need to work it out. I know when we come to Jesus, this is just the first stage of our salvation experience, that the moment we come to Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and we enter into a transformation process. It's a supernatural transformation process where God is working in us from the inside out to transform us to be like Jesus. But this is not something that happens automatically. God is working. The question is, are we responding? And so Paul says, hey, you don't get it. Do you understand what happened when Jesus came in? When you gave your life to Jesus, God came to live in you. You're now a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is actively working in your life. So sit up and pay attention. And look what he says. He says, continue to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Not couch potato. Yeah, I saved in 72, waiting for Jesus to come back. 
You see, when we have the wrong view of salvation, we miss what God is really up to in our lives. Paul says, hey, you need to be taking what's happening in your life seriously. The God of the universe has come to take up residence in your life. Your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You need to sit up and pay attention. When God shows up, you better be paying attention. So he says you need to work out your salvation because God's at work in you. God's putting his desires in you. God is putting his thoughts in your mind. God is giving you the power to change. But you can either choose to cooperate or you can choose to resist. And so look what he says. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you. And it says he's doing two things. First, he's, given, he's working in you to will, to give you a new desire in life. And then secondly, to act, to give you the power to carry out that desire in order to fulfill his good purpose, right? And so the question I have for you is how big is your salvation? How big is your view of salvation? And you say, Michael, why is this so important? Because we grow to the limit of our vision. Like, let me give you an example. Let's take a young child that's born into a very poor ghetto area. That child grows up and all he sees is maybe uh, uh, drugs, uh, gangs, prostitution, right? Maybe he doesn't have, his, the family's not intact. He's passed around. And let me ask you something. What's the chance that that child's gonna grow up, graduate from high school, maybe go to college, get a, a career. Like, what's the chance? It's very slim. It happens sometimes, but when it happens, we tend to trumpet it and celebrate it because it's so unusual. And why, why doesn't that happen in that child's life where if that same child was born into different circumstances, it would be completely different? It's because that child has never been exposed to a vision of what his life could be. Everyone he knows is a criminal. Everyone he knows is a drug addict. Everyone he knows is sleeping around all the place. Everyone he knows is a prostitute. It's like, that's what he knows. And so that's what life's about. See, we tend to grow to the limit of our vision. And so if your vision of what it means to be saved is small, you will never grow. I got saved in 72, waiting for Jesus to come back. Think it's gonna happen. Yep, Middle East, yep, come back. Yeah, I serve a little bit. Yeah, I go to church sometimes. Yeah, I read my Bible from time to time. I even give a little bit every once in a while. I'm saved by faith, waiting for Jesus to come back. You see what happens like when our vision is wrong, but you know what happens is we begin to get around some believers that have a different vision. Maybe you join a new church that has a different vision. Maybe someone turns you on to a podcast of a pastor with a different vision. And you know what happens? You get around those believers and they're growing and they're changing and they're experiencing the presence and the power of God and they're hungry for God and God's using them. And you begin to look and you're, your vision begins to increase. You begin to say, I wonder if that could happen to me too. 
And the answer is yes. And this is why our vision and understanding of what it means to be saved is so important. If we have a small vision, we will never grow to become the people we are created to be. And so as we go through, Paul's gonna talk about the power of God that leads to salvation, and we can't hear. That means saved in 72. That we need to say, hey, God has called me to be, come to Jesus, to be transformed in every way, to become like him. He wants to heal our marriage. He wants to build a strong family. He wants me to release his gifts in my life. He wants to change me at the core character. He wants to release a new passion for him in my life. He wants him to be the most important person in my life, and not because he should be, because I'm just so passionate about him, I can't stop, stand it. That's what he wants to do. And so the question is, how big is your salvation? The second question goes like this, is how great is your power? So the fifth and final word that Paul uses here, a big concept, is this word power. The Greek word for that is dunamis. That's, of course, where we get our word dynamite from. But notice what he says in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God, the dunamis of God, that brings salvation. And so this is interesting because at the first reading, you'd ask the question, like, why would Paul be ashamed? Why is he saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, we have to remember that in the first century, the gospel, the message of Jesus, was ridiculous to most people. It was just extremely countercultural. I mean, for the Jew, for, for Jews who are waiting for a Messiah, the concept of a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. Messiahs don't get crucified by Rome. Messiahs conquer Rome. And for Greeks, it's complete foolishness. Remember, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the first century Roman world. The idea that a Jewish peasant from the backwaters of the Roman Empire who is crucified for high treason on a Roman cross, that he is alive, he rose from the dead, which who wants that in Greek philosophy? He rose from the dead and he's now the actual Lord over all creation. It's ridiculous. This is why in Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. And he said, to Jews, it's a stumbling block, oxymoron. And to the Greeks, he said, it's foolishness. And so Paul recognizes that this message that he brings is, feels completely ridiculous to most people. But what he says in 1 Corinthians is he says, but to those who are called, it is the power of God. And that's what he's saying here. Paul says, Hey, what I find, I know this message to many seems ridiculous, but here's what happens. When I share this message, guess what? The power of God gets released because it's true and and people's lives are changed. But what I want you to notice is there is a interesting relationship, powerful relationship between the word power and the word faith in this this, uh, summary. And he says like there in your note sheet, he says in Romans 1, 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings what? Salvation. Salvation, right? 
But then if you go on, it's like salvation to whom? To everyone who what? Believes, you see? So Paul says that, hey, when I share this message, we have like flooding going on up here or like what's going on? Is it me? It's not me. It's everyone. I'm like, praise God, it's flooding, right? It's like, yeah, right. Hey, let's go get toilet paper and build an ark. You know, it's like time to, <laughs> right. This is great. It's a public, public service announcement from Rocky Peak to you. That's, uh... Okay, so let's go back. So, hey, there's a connection between experiencing the power of God and our believing, our faith. So this is interesting. Paul says, when I share the gospel, some people don't believe and they experience no power. When I share that, some people believe and their lives are changed. It connects in the power. And he says, and the key is faith. But this raises the question for us, well, what is faith? And this is very important. What does it mean to believe? Because in like cultural Christianity, we have a very wrong understanding of what it means to believe the gospel. So for for many of us, um, when we think of the word believe or the word faith, we think of kind of a mental agreement with certain statements about the life of Jesus. So like we're filling out a form, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes, check. Do you believe he died for our sins? Yes, check. Uh, Do you believe he rose from the dead? Yes, check. Okay, then you believe. But here's what I want you to catch. In the New Testament, and this is true not just for Paul, but for most of the New Testament writers, the word pistuo, to believe, or the word for faith, pistis, it would be much better translated in most occasions as the word trust. Do you trust in Jesus? And guess what? How do you know if you trust in Jesus and his teaching? by whether you listen and follow what he says. If we say we believe, but we don't listen and follow, we're only fooling ourselves. Let me give you an illustration. Oh my gosh, what's that, Android going off? I don't know. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. It's like... Like, that person, you'd be dead by now. You answer in the wrong spot. It's like, we've all moved to higher ground five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, like, oh, look at that. Remember him? Yeah, he served in uh, Kids Praise. Uh, kids, yeah. Oh, gee. Should have had an iPhone. No. Uh, so let me give you an illustration to, uh, to help us understand the difference between cultural faith and biblical faith, all right? So today we started the day with a story. It's a true story, by the way. Uh, uh, this 34-year-old Frenchman, um, his, his name was Charles Blondin. Some of you may recognize the story. It's a very famous story, but my guess is you don't know the whole story. I certainly didn't. But uh, his name is Charles Blondin. So he's, a, he's, an, he's an acrobat from, from France, but he's come to the United States, and he's about to attempt a feat that no one has ever accomplished, 
and that most people believe is impossible, that on this day, he's going to attempt to walk a tightrope from the United States to Canada over Niagara Falls. It's over three football fields long. It's 1,100 feet. And so as a result, uh, crowds have come. Now, the date is it's a Thursday. It's the last day of June, June 30, 1859. And in spite of the fact that travel back then is not what it was now, 25,000 people from all walks of life had gathered. The vendors are there. They're, they're literally selling everything from lemonade to whiskey. Um, they've got many, many famous people who could go on and on about there. And they've come to watch this, this incredible feat. Bets are being placed, whether he's going to make it or he's going to die. Um, the roaring falls are going. You know, it's just crazy. And it's shortly before 5 o'clock, he gets up and, uh, you know, the sun's still fairly high in the sky because it's June. It's up north in New York, right? And so uh, the sun's starting its descent. And it, shortly before 5, he gets up and takes his first step. And the crowd, there's a collective hush. In fact, uh, we're told that many people fainted. The tension was so high. And he begins his walk across the Niagara Falls. And when he passed the midpoint, which was the most difficult part, he actually begins to run to the other side. And eventually he gets to the other side, and then he turns around and comes back. And when he gets back, hey, this is a true story. This is from the Smithsonian. This is my source, Smithsonian Magazine. So as he gets back to the other side, uh, you know, everyone's you know, going crazy, and he becomes extremely famous and extremely wealthy. And in the coming years, he will repeat this trip over the Niagara Falls 17 times. But he wants to make it more difficult, because, you know, you always have to do, add something more, right? So he goes over one time blindfolded. I mean, try that. Just try, like, just standing on one foot with your eyes closed. I mean, it's very difficult. Um, and one of his stunts, he went over on stilts. One of his more famous stunts, he, put, he pushed a wheelbarrow across the whole way and back. And when he did that, the crowd is going crazy, and they're just shouting his name, and they're cheering, and he, he says, who believes that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow? and roll it across and back. And everyone's going crazy, yes. And one guy's really loud, yes, I believe. And he said, great, why don't you get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and the guy suddenly shrunk away in the crowd. <laughs> so they all believed he could do it. But no one was willing to put their life on the line and trust him. And men and women, all over there's this nation, there are people that say they believe in Jesus, but have not trusted him with their life. And here's what I want you to catch. It is not until we get in the wheelbarrow, the power of the gospel is released in our lives. You know, last week we had Natasha Crane here speaking on Tuesday night. She was reminding us of statistics that we all read back in January in her book, Faithfully Different. 
65% of people in America claim to be Christians. I don't know about you, but I don't see it. And why would 65% of our crazy country claim to be Christians? Because you believe Jesus died for your sins? Yep. Believe he rose from the dead? Yep. Believe something got? Yep. But have never really trusted him with our life. How do you know if you trust him? By whether you listen and follow. This last week, I was re-listening to Dallas Willard's book, uh, Renovation of the Heart, and he happened to make this statement. I thought it was so perfect. He said, the idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion. It's generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving Christian culture. In fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him than you could trust your doctor and your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. Indeed, no one can actually believe the truth about him without trusting him by intending to obey him. It's a mental impossibility. What he's saying is if you believe someone, you will act accordingly. If we say we believe someone, we don't act accordingly, it's like, well, we don't really believe them. And in other areas of life, that may not be so important, but when it comes to our salvation, it does. And so the question is, how great is the power that you're experiencing? Paul says here, this whole message, this whole letter is gonna be about this big picture message of what God has done through the Messiah to rescue and restore it, and it should be unleashing the power of God in our life. In fact, there in your note sheet, earlier on in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, uh, chapter four, Paul makes a statement. He says, the kingdom of God, this new relationship we enter into, this new kingdom we enter into when we come to Jesus, he said, it's not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. So let me ask you, what's the power quotient in your life? If I had a scale of one to 10, the power of the God. Hey, are you experiencing the power? Let me ask you, how much passion do you have for Jesus and the things of God? How hungry are you for the word of God? How passionate are you want to share Jesus with others? How much are you experiencing his life-transforming power? You're becoming a different person. You can sense it. How much power are you experiencing in your marriage? How much power are you experiencing in your family? How much is Jesus transforming your view of life so you're living this life in light of the next life? How much is it changing your priorities? Like if it's not, if, 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 it's, if it's, these things are not happening, it's like we're not plugged in. It's like we've got the right cord, but we're not plugged in. Because the message of the gospel is how it releases the power of God in our lives. And if we're not experiencing the presence and the power and the growth and the transfer, if we're not experiencing that, chances are we believe, but we don't trust. What you see is when someone moves from believe to trust, it happens. I see it over and over again the power of the gospel. And they start having victory over sin, new hungers, new desires, new priorities, 
new passions, new freedom. They're getting free from anxiety. They're getting free from depression. They're getting free from fear. Their life is changing because of the power of their salvation that is released through the gospel. So here's the question. This is not, I think you know my heart. I just, I just don't have it with it. Like, I'm not a person to say, put guilt and shame. I just want to point the way. And I'm going to say, if you're not experiencing the power of the gospel, is it possible that you believe but are not trusting? And if that's so, then there's good news. Because you have not yet begun to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You've been on the edge watching others perform. You've not gotten in the wheelbarrow. And it's when we get in the wheelbarrow, I'm telling you, you're in for the ride of your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we just thank you for the beauty of your word. Jesus, we thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection that transforms us by the power of your spirit, when we truly trust our life to you. And don't just say we believe, but we start following you because we trust you. And so Lord, as we worship together, as we sing this song about believing in the power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that, that you be speaking to us. And if we have been believing but not trusting, that we would get out of the crowd, get in that wheelbarrow and start riding with you to a new future. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.